Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's show. We've got a bit of a different concept that we're going to throw out here and see how it goes over. Um, But we're basically looking at doing a five interesting things we've done recently. And to start off the five interesting things, I think we've got a list of seven topics. (laughs) So we're not off to a great start. And as Michael and I were discussing off the air, we'll, we'll probably do... Uh, one of these episodes every so often once we've accumulated a few interesting things. So um, you'll be able to tell how interesting and exciting our lives are by how frequently we do these episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exciting is the right word because sometimes these things aren't, you know, super awesome, but they're, they're you know, worth talking about, I think. Yeah, and there's been a few things in the news lately. Um, so I don't want to spoil the secrets. We'll make you listen all the way through to, <laughs> to hear what we're talking about. But uh, yeah, I think there's we've accumulated enough interesting things now that uh, that one of these episodes is deserved. Yeah, agreed. So why don't we just launch right into it? So the the first interesting thing you've got to talk about, Michael, what is that? Um, so I've uh, I've been goofing around with shoes for a little while, um, especially since well, two 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 reasons. I, my my old fleet was getting really really old, and uh, the conversation we had um, oh, now probably two months ago with uh, Steve Palladino about using uh, his running not not his but the running effectiveness uh, metric. So that is very quickly um, the ratio of pace or speed to running power and that's uh, watts per kilogram so it's weight adjusted power and the the you know obvious point there is that you want that number as high as possible because you want more speed for less power so that preamble aside um, one of the neat things you can do with this is you can actually uh, test shoes against one another so you can uh, you know under similar conditions you know you control your conditions so that you know hopefully the same kind of temperature wind speed um, certainly the same course you put on a couple of different shoes and you try them out with your, with your power meter. And so I've been goofing around with different ones. I tried, um, the Nike fly knits, so not the four percents or next percents, but, uh, the ones with the carbon plate, but the, you know, the ordinary foam, um, I had, uh, a new balance fuel cell shoe. And then I've also, I also got my hands on, um, um, the fairly recently released Skechers Razor 3 Speed Shoe. And I've been running in, razor, in uh, Razors and in Skechers for a while because uh, they fit my feet really well and I like the way they feel. But one thing I found is that um, in doing a little bit of very ad hoc testing is that the the Skechers shoe for me was uh, showed a, you know, uh, I, what I would consider a statistically significant improvement in my running economy. A running effectiveness, excuse me, um, using the the stride power meter. So, I kind of did the thing I was I shouldn't have done. And um, when I ran the the Toronto Marathon, um, it would have been now two and a half weeks ago. Um, even though I primarily trained in the the Nike shoe, I made the kind of the eleventh hour switch just because these numbers were. Um, they look better for the Skechers shoe. And, uh, you know, uh, the race, I obviously can't compare it because I didn't run the same race in the Nike shoe, but uh, the race went better than planned in uh, in some respects. Um, and uh, I am uh, now uh, really a, a, a convert um, of that of that shoe. I'm excited to try to uh, give it a go at a shorter race because they were 
it's a pretty minimal, it's not a minimal shoe in the traditional sense, but it's not too much of a shoe. It's a fairly lightweight shoe. So to run a marathon in that shoe was a little bit of a stretch. My feet were pretty beat up at the end of it. Um, so I'd love to try it for like a 5k, 10k and then do a little bit more testing. So I'll report back on it, but the preliminary results were the sample size was me. <laughs> Looked pretty good. So for the sake of science, um, I recommend yes, that you science. go back and run the <laughs> run the marathon in the Nike shoes and yeah. we'll compare results. <laughs> so let me know how that goes. Yeah, deal. So, you know, funny that you mentioned that because I, um, I came... I didn't come close to a BQ, which I was never shooting for because I think it's unrealistic for me at this point. But um, the way that the, you know, the ages work, um, I would age up next year for Boston. Um, so next year, I kind of have in the back of my head uh, the plan to run it again and try it for, for a BQ. But um, the other thing that I've learned recently is that Skechers is coming out with a carbon plate version of that shoe. So the same Razor 3 speed with uh you know, with the carbon plate. So I think that shoe could be a real, hmm. a real winner. So if anything, I'm going to be running that marathon in that shoe, probably. And I'll be honest, I'm a big fan of Skechers shoes as well. Uh, the first pair I had was actually one through, I think it was the Barrelman Triathlon. Um, so for the, the relay event. And I hadn't tried Skechers before, and that was the first introduction. And I found that the shoes were really comfortable. They fit my feet well. Uh, they ended up being fairly inexpensive compared to a lot of the competitor shoes. And yep. they maybe don't last quite as long, but um, but I've found them to be fantastic. And like I'll buy once I find a, a model because I keep changing them. That's the problem. I find one I like, yes. and then they they update them. Um, but yeah, I'll buy two or three pairs at once and and go through those over the course of maybe two years. But uh, I I love the shoes. It's the Go Run series that I've been using, and yep. I think the six was the latest one I have, and that's the full. Uh, one piece upper so they don't yep, have a the, tongue the sock upper yeah yeah um so i find that works really well and i've ran the, the last few um last few races on those last few ironman races um so they've been yep. fantastic for me although admittedly i was probably walking more than running in those races but that's not the fault of the shoe you should try you you have to try these new ones on because they've they've so the the difference is the foam is different the midsole is made from a different foam and so i find um the fit is still very similar to and i've been more of a fan of the razor as opposed to the go run I've, although i've run in both um i find that the the foam in the new shoe is yeah it looks you know it looks to be pretty pretty great for that energy return which is really the you know the 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 opinion is a little bit split on what's what makes the nike four percent shoes so great um whether it's a carbon uh plate or the actual midsole foam but i think the most of the smarter folks are betting on the foam that it's actually the foam that makes the biggest difference the carbon plate makes a smaller difference so this the new foam in the sketcher shoe Again, n equals one over here, but uh, it really worked for me. And uh, just to be just to be fully transparent, Skechers in no, is in no way sponsoring this show, so we're, <laughs> I'm not pl I'm not plugging them because they're paying me to. I just happen to think that they make pretty solid shoes. Well, let's uh, stay on the shoe uh, topic then. I've got something else to add to that, and uh, I've actually got some new bike shoes. And this was more a mistake than anything that led to me getting these shoes. <laughs> so if you remember back a few episodes, I had my shoes sent off to someone in Pennsylvania, I guess. Um, oh, is that where they ended that's, up? That's that. That is where they ended up. And oh, okay. Well, that was that's the closure to that anecdote. Yeah, yeah. So I got everything returned to me, and I would like to say that they in no way opened the bags or thought about drying out any of my equipment. So it was. <laughs> so you got a you got a you got a moldy bloody towel back. Then? Uh, I think it was just dried blood. Actually, <laughs> oh, okay. it didn't. Fortunately, nothing got too. 
too science projecty. Um, so <laughs> there weren't any new species or anything that uh, that had evolved in these separated ecosystems. But you didn't clone yourself. No, <laughs> but th- I would hate to see the results of that. But uh, yeah, uh, it was a little little stinky when it came out, but uh, it could have been a lot worse. So I got everything back. I was happy about that. Uh, but in nice. the meantime, I did pick up. A uh, new pair of bike shoes, and um, I ended up getting them in Kona just because the booth next to us was Physic. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll try on some other shoes, and then I tried on their shoes, and I said, oh, these. It turns out if you spend more money on bike shoes, they feel really good. <laughs> so um, <laughs> sometimes, yeah, sometimes if they're the proper shoe. So it was the Transiro Infinito R1 that I got. Um, so it's got two BOA connectors and I was a little reluctant going to the BOA connectors for triathlon shoe. Um, but I thought, you know what, I'll have this pair that I can play with. I'll have eventually my other pair back. Um, but I really like the, the BOAs for the adjustment. It gives you nice ability to tighten or loosen rather than ripping off that whole Velcro, um, connector and, and trying to fine tune that because you never really get it where you want. Um, there's maybe a little bit of a sacrifice in terms of transition time, but I think overall, you end up with much more comfortable feet. Nice. Yeah. Um, that, that I'm, I'm a fan of Boa too, having had them on my last couple pair of, uh, mountain bike and road shoes. It just, yeah, the, the ability to adjust it plus or minus is, it's just so much easier than with any kind of ratchet sort of enclosure. Yeah. And like I was saying with the, the higher quality shoes, uh, you can really tell like the, the extra, um, effort that they put into the finish and, and everything looks really nice. But the, the one cool feature that I picked up on that, um, probably most people haven't noticed is there's these little air inlets on the bottom, um, probably to help with drainage, but it's basically aligned so that you get cross flow in underneath the toes and it comes out just in front of the heel. Um, so if you've got extra water or if you've got sweat accumulating or even heat, um, this will help kind of vent some of that out of the shoe, which I thought was a pretty cool little feature. And it's something I don't actually see advertised anywhere. Um, but admittedly I haven't looked at their, their literature too much, but, uh, I thought it was pretty cool to see that. Yeah. This has been a feature on triathlon cycling shoes in, in quite some time. And even some road shoes, they're, they're as build more as ventilation than, than drainage, obviously. Um, although if you get stuck in the rain, drainage, drainage is useful too. Um, but yeah, the kind of mid end high end shoes have, uh, have had this for a little while. I think, um, I'm trying to think, I think Garneau had a patent on a, on a ventilation slash drainage system in their carbon sole that they said that other manufacturers have picked up on. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it certainly is handy when you come out of the, come out of the water and if it's a fast transition, your feet don't dry or certainly in, in rainy, you know, if your if your shoe is fully closed and it's pouring down rain on you, you end up with little, you know, little hot tubs for your feet <laughs> if you don't have the holes to, to drain, drain that water. And the other time too, is just when it's really hot and you're dumping water on yourself, it eventually runs down your legs and, right. and pools. Uh, and that's what happened to me in Maryland and will likely happen to me in Mexico as well. Cause I anticipate that being <laughs> fairly warm. Right. Well, that's, um, that may be a good, uh, a good segue to one of your other topics that you want to talk about. And that's, uh, the sauna studies. How are you, uh, how are you leveraging those in training for Mexico and get becoming heat adapted? Well, the great thing about heat acclimation is it turns something that's normally enjoyable into a, a torture chamber. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well said. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it is interesting though because the first few minutes are kind of relaxing and it's like oh there's you know nice steam and everything, uh, but then after 
you know, 10 minutes, it just becomes uncomfortable. And that's when your body's fighting with dehydration and overheating and, and yeah, just, just to lay out the protocol, I'm basically doing, uh, maybe two by 10 minutes is where I started at, uh, it's in Fahrenheit, which I hate, but, uh, I think the, the sauna goes like starts at hundred, then 105, 110, 115. Okay. Um, so it's got those different temperature settings. 115 is like oppressively hot. It's just, you can't stay in there very long because it's so much higher than your body temperature. Sure. Um, but when you get to 105, 100 to 105, you can stay in for quite a while. Um, so trying to find that balance of what's reasonably comfortable, what you can kind of elevate your core body temperature enough to get that adaptation, to get your body used to being in that overheated, dehydrated state. Um, it's, uh, yeah, just, just spending time in there. And then over the course of time, just elevating the amount of time you spend in there, uh, just session by session going up by a minute or two. So start out at uh, two by 10 minutes with three minutes rest in between, then two by 11 minutes, something like that. And uh, yeah, it's it's been interesting. So are you doing this after your workout? So like immediately after a bike or a run? Yeah. So it's usually after lighter workouts. Um, and what I'll do is try to avoid using a fan or drinking water during the workout. Hmm. So if I do maybe an hour at, um, slightly below Ironman pace, mm-hmm. um, not a particularly intense workout. So, uh, it's enough that, um, you build up some heat and you're, you're sweating a bit or sweating quite a bit actually, Yeah, with uh, no especially fan, without yes. the fan. Yeah. Um, so you get your body into that slightly elevated temperature, the a bit of dehydration, uh, and then you go immediately into the sauna afterwards, and you just continue that trend without having to do the physical exertion. Are you drinking in the sauna? Because the the study that I've seen that I think our, our mutual friend Tilbury Davis sent me is that you you would drink ad libitum in the in the sauna after the workout. Yeah, so I'm I'm trying not to drink uh, unless it's unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, I do find that the drinking provides kind of a, a very short-term benefit. Um, it, it does bring your core body temperature and give you that little bit of relief, but uh, within 30 seconds of drinking, you feel back to where you felt before. Right. I think the idea is that you're, you know, one of the physiological effects of heat, uh, heat training is increased blood plasma volume. So I think the idea behind drinking when you're in that hot environment is then, you know, you're really, you know, you're, you're really giving your body the tools it needs to, to increase bl- uh, blood plasma. Okay. Well, maybe I'll give that a try in my next, in my next session. Um, I have found it challenging to to go without drinking for those full sessions especially as they get longer it just becomes extremely uncomfortable um yeah yeah and and keep in mind too like you know it's kind of if you if you take the big picture like what you're doing is obviously important but if you are if you dehydrate yourself to let's say you know dangerous levels of dehydration not that you're you know risking your health likely but um you it'll take you much longer to recover from that session right so that you can get back to training mm-hmm. so it's always a little bit of a balancing point and then and again yeah the study that i've that i've seen um where they've they've shown they've shown really good effects from heat training uh heat acclimation training people were drinking two-thirds so as much as you want uh, with no limit uh in the sauna no drinking during the workout, but then drinking ad libitum um, in the in the sauna. Okay, and maybe I misinterpreted the instructions on that. So, um, so I'll give that a try next time. See how it, how it compares. Yeah, I talked to Alex. Double check with him, but mm-hmm. that's. I mean, you know, there's there's so many different ways. There, I, it would be silly for me to say that there's one right way to do this. Um, <laughs> but the you know the experience I have within the 
the the study I've seen is yeah, drink when you're when you're cooking yourself after the workout. The results of this, I'd say, are pretty noticeable so far, um, where I'm sweating a lot earlier in workouts. Um, so just nice, even yeah. in the warm-up, it's just it's coming on quickly. Um, and then I feel cold all the time now. So it is winter here in Alberta. <laughs> uh, and as Alex pointed out, I basically live in the Arctic now. So maybe that's you know just a, a factor of being here. But um, yeah, I have to keep the house warmer. Um, I'm always turning up the thermostat, and it's just it never used to be this way. I, I always used to be really hot and be able to to deal with the cold temperatures, but now it's just the opposite. So hopefully this pays off for the race because otherwise I've just made myself uncomfortable a lot. For sure. It's it's funny how that works. I, I, find, I find the exact same thing, like the fitter, you know, the, the more my fitness improves, my you know aerobic fitness improves, uh, those two things you pointed out for sure. You, I, I sweat way sooner than, you know, other people like will be outside and I'm, you know, quite sweaty and uh, people around me think that I'm, I'm, you know, in serious distress, whereas <laughs> my body doing its thing. And then I find that I can tolerate heat a lot better than most people. Like I don't mind being out in, you know, in the summer and when it's hot, but what, as soon as it gets a little bit cold, like, you know, today's a really nice day. It's maybe 10 or 11 degrees and sunny and not very windy. So it's a nice fall crisp day, but I like I'm, I'm in layers. <laughs> like I'm already busting out my hats and winter jackets because I, I also get cold much easier. And so everyone makes fun of me for that also, because my kids are wearing way less clothing than I am. Like, Daddy, why are you so cold? You're just setting a good, good example for them. I suppose. I hope. Yeah. So what have we got next on, on your list then? I've done two of mine now. Oh yeah. Right. So, um, speaking of unpleasant experiences, uh, last weekend I was, or was two weekend before last, uh, I was doing some hiking with the family in, um, in Hamilton in the Royal Botanical Gardens. And I brought home a couple of unwanted travelers. Um, and those were black-legged ticks. Mm. which uh, I found one on my arm uh, kind of uh, a few hours after we got back from the trip and then one embedded pretty deep behind my knee uh, the next day. So, uh, you know, I, I'd been aware of tick, um, you know, tick risk and then uh, and the, the risk of uh, Lyme disease, which of course deer ticks or black-legged ticks, which are the same species they uh, potentially transmit. But, um, you know, having gone through it myself now, I know way more stuff about it. So I'm going to kind of do some high level pointers for uh, for listeners, because uh, the fact of the matter is um, the black legged tick populations as, uh, you know, our winters get milder. Thank you, global warming. Those populations are, are coming north. So there are now established populations in and around Ontario and in, um, and in some parts, some other parts of Canada as well. I don't remember the full map, but certainly southern Ontario, places like Hamilton where I was, certain places around Toronto, um, and then further south in, the, in the, uh, the Golden Horseshoe are definitely seeing established tick populations. So these aren't seasonal. They're, they're, I mean, they, they're not active in the winter, but they're, it's not like they're transitory. They're there year after year. And they have found Lyme disease in many of these populations. So it's something that if we're going to be spending any kind of time outdoors and, you know, in triathlon running, especially trail running is a very outdoor, obviously, um, activity. Uh, it's important to be aware of these, uh, you know, new friends of ours and, uh, and what we need to do to make sure that we stay healthy out there. So one thing I learned is, uh, well, one of the things I learned is that they actually have to stay attached for quite some time before transmission is likely. 
Um, and we figured that I was, I pulled these two guys off before, um, before I was likely to be infected. So I didn't bother with, or my doctor recommended not to go with prophylaxis for Lyme and just to watch for symptoms. Um, and those symptoms are flu-like or uh, developing rash, a growing rash at the site of the bite, which fortunately I didn't have for either of those bite sites. Um, the other thing to note, which was something that was new to me, is uh, obviously as soon as we, as soon as I found the first one, I checked myself, and then I checked my kids, and 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 Dan and my wife, we she she checked herself um, just to see if there were any more on us. But when we were out in Hamilton, we were um, dressed in long pants and, and long sleeves, and I was even wearing gloves. So it turns out that these guys were on our clothes when we brought them home. And uh, because I wasn't aware of the risk, I didn't do anything. So then from our clothes, then they, then they got onto my skin. So apparently the, the fix for that is actually quite straightforward. Is if you are in, a, in an area where you think or you know ticks are active, the best thing to do is uh, as soon as you get home, you know, take off all your clothes, all your, you know, your exterior shell clothes and throw them in the dryer for about 15, 20 minutes because uh, ticks are quite sensitive to heat and uh, that'll kill them. So that's what I should have done, and of course, after I found the first one and did my googling, I did that with uh, with the rest of them. But uh, clearly, we had spent enough time at home that there was another there was another one uh, that managed to find itself onto you know onto the bed somewhere, and then ended up behind my knee as I slept overnight. So that's a little bit gross, but um, I'm I'm almost relieved to have had that experience because it was something that I was anxious about you know, knowing and hearing about these reports that ticks are active in the areas where, where we run, where my kids play, where I walk my dog. Um, and so uh, having actually gone through the experience now, I feel a little bit better about it because I, you know, as unpleasant as it is, it's not, it's not the end of the world. It's not like, you know, you get a tick bite and then you're doomed. It's, you know, you just pull it out, which is kind of a fun experience <laughs> depending on how deep, how deeply dug in that tick is. And then, uh, you know, you watch for symptoms, right? And then if, if you think you've been, uh, that tick's been attached for more than 24 hours, you go for prophylaxis. And if not, you, yeah, just pay attention for symptoms. And Lyme disease, if uh, caught fairly early, is very well treated with antibiotics. So even though it is, it can be a serious, um, a serious health risk if left untreated, uh, generally speaking, if, if folks are aware of what to look for and they get treatment on time, and it's just anti a course of antibiotics, um, but if you do get treatment on time, then the, you know, the outcomes are pretty good. So, uh, you know, all the, all the people that we hear about in our community, um, kind of the ones that come to mind are like Angela Nath, um, who had, uh, I think, I believe untreated Lyme disease and she had some, you know, some pretty neg serious, uh, health effects from it. That's not, uh, that's not a foregone conclusion if you treat it early. Yeah, it's it's always a scary experience to go through something like that. And I know that it's a very difficult thing to diagnose and it's often misdiagnosed or not ignored, but just um, it's just doctors will see it and it's the symptoms communicate something else other than Lyme disease. So they don't expect that or they don't believe that it could be Lyme disease. So you have to be your own advocate sometimes in order to get the the proper treatment if you do think you have it. For sure, I think I think you're right. I think though that the the medical community is certainly waking up to the fact that these that Lyme is is here. At least here by here, I mean in southern Ontario, mm -hmm. and certainly in the United States, it's pretty widespread um, <clears throat> in the eastern seaboard uh, for sure. And uh, I don't know about the rest of the country, but 
people there I, I hear are, you know, if you're if you're in the forest where you know there are ticks, it's kind of something that you do. You come home, throw your clothes in the dryer, check yourself for ticks. Um, if you have any, you pop them off. Um, they're actually fairly easy to remove when they first start to attach. It's when they kind of get dug in, they're a little bit trickier. Um, and then you, you're fine. You watch for symptoms, right? Like you watch for the rash, you watch for, um, you watch for fever, uh, joint pain, that kind of stuff. It was funny cause when I, I went to my doctor for a consultation, I also got my flu shot. Um, and so she said, okay, I got to tell you that even though you probably know this, you can't get the flu from the flu shot. So if you're feeling flu symptoms, we should be talking about Lyme disease and you know, it's not your flu shot. Don't just think it's that. So I think to your to your point, you do have to advocate for yourself. Uh, I think that's super important. But also, I think the well, again, my doctor and then the I, I spoke to a couple of uh, uh, folks at uh, Toronto Public Health when I donated my ticks to them um, <laughs> after pulling them off. Uh, they were saying, "Yeah, look, you know, we know that these populations are established now. This is what you look out for, and if you you know you see any of these symptoms, this is when you should really seek treatment." So uh, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but um, I've heard that there's a couple techniques that are better for removing the ticks because if you yeah. squeeze them with tweezers, for example, you can empty the contents of their stomach where the bacteria is mixed with your blood and that can es essentially inject the, uh, the Lyme disease bacteria um, into your body, which can be problematic. And right. uh, so did, did your doctor go over some of the removal techniques? Yeah, I mean, I it, this was they were gone by then, right? I, I popped them off. So I'm like, I'm not walking around with these things on my skin. So I, I looked, I, you know, I watched a YouTube video and I looked it up. But yeah, the idea is you uh, you want to be able to grab them as close to the head as possible. And exactly what you say, you want to, you know, the idea is you pull straight up so that the there's less of a risk of so straight up being like, you know, perpendicular to your skin so that there's less of a risk of any part of the tick still being left embedded in your skin, which does happen to people, didn't happen to me. Um, but certainly it's, you know, the first one, like I said, wasn't attached. It was easy to pop off, but the second one was dug in pretty deep. So that took, took a few tries. <laughs> um, and I also then got special, you know, I ordered tick tweezers from Amazon afterwards because, uh, the ones I had weren't the best, but yeah, you want something with a really fine kind of point so that you don't, you don't squeeze them because black legged ticks are actually quite small, especially when they're not, when they haven't had their blood meal yet, they're only about the size of, um, of um you know like a small grain of rice so they're only about you know, maybe two or three millimeters in length so you know you have to be to grab only the head you kind of have to be you know, pretty precise so if you're not already revolted by ticks um, <laughs> i remember going to algonquin park at the visitor center um i don't know if it's the black-legged ticks but there's a certain type of tick that gets on the moose there and it causes a lot of discomfort but over the course of the winter it will feed and it will increase in mass by about a thousand times um, so it basically becomes a swollen blood sack <laughs> that's attached to a moose and uh they it doesn't cause any disease in the moose but what it actually uh, causes is they rub off their fur so they lose all their insulation for the winter and then they die of exposure oh, um, crazy! so yeah i mean there's ticks are not just a problem for people they're a problem for quite a few animals as well for sure and if you have if you have pets you know pet, pets are kind of like vacuums for this kind of stuff so again if you live in a i'm sure your, your vet's been telling you this and you're you're doing that already but if you've if you live in a tick affected area the, the medication that uh, they commonly recommend will actually kill ticks on contact so they don't even have the opportunity to attach which is great because that means that your 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 dog or your cat aren't, isn't going to be bringing them home 
All right, enough about ticks because I'm thoroughly grossed out now. <laughs> well, you kind of did that to yourself know, with your with your blood sack, <laughs> you know, story. Yeah, I, I do that from yeah. time to time, but uh, <laughs> I think it's time to move on. I agree. That's our PSA for the day. It's All right, over. we've done our our public service. Right. All right. Uh, did you want to talk about your marathon at all? I'll, I'll go over it briefly. I, you know, I mentioned the fact that I, I went through, um, uh, that I used, you know, th- that I made a shoe switch right at the very end, which was maybe not super well advised. But um, the marathon was uh, was an interesting event only because I did the thing I tell people never to do. I uh, I started to overpace the the race right from the start, mostly because I wanted to see like at what point the wheels would fall off and understanding the fact that eventually they would fall off. And uh, it was kind of like, you know, uh, Tilbury Davis is a great line that uh, hope is not, hope is not a uh, replacement for a plan or not, not no substitute for a plan. And uh, I violated that, (laughs) that maxim completely. Um, So half like, so my goal was around 315 and I would have been really happy with that. Um, I was through the halfway mark at around, um, 93 minutes. So I was on pace for like three Oh six, which was faster than I had any business running. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it was very, yeah, I was quite ambitious. Uh, it still wouldn't have given me a BQ. So, I, you know, I'm not sure what I was thinking. Um, but, um, also my, uh, my, uh, stride power meter kind of gave up the ghosts halfway through the through the race at around kilometer 19 it stopped working so i was like well now it's you know now it's just pacing by pace um so i held that pace and then kind of started to get you know rough at around the 25k mark and i but i held it pretty well and up until about 31 or 32 when you know then the mechanical failures started to really creep in and i just couldn't i couldn't run with the correct form anymore because i was getting um enough of that muscular fatigue onset uh, and then, uh, you know, I had a pretty, I ended up with a pretty big positive split. I ran, so like I said, I ran the first in 96 minutes or 93 minutes and then the back half in 98 minutes. So five minute positive split, just not good for a marathon, but, um, ended up running 311, which was, you know, I was very happy with that time. Um, and that I think puts me in striking distance for next year for Boston. If I run that, you know, if I run like a through uh, that 306 time that's a guaranteed boston qualifier for me because it's four minutes under the time and um i think i can because i know where the limiters were the limiters were not metabolic um, my heart rate stayed reasonable for the whole race and that i had um you know no problem eating or drinking and then the energy levels were pretty reasonable the the real struggle for me was muscular endurance and that was uh um I think part, part, yeah, like that was definitely because of a, a lack of specific training. Because uh, one of the things I did was I ran that uh, that fifty k trail race about a month before, which was fun and like had a great time at that race. But it's not the best idea if you're doing a marathon build because after that trail race, I had much less motivation to work hard <laughs> and to do you know the tempo runs, which are essential for marathon training, and the kind of the long run tempo finish efforts, which are again, essential for marathon training. Um, so I just didn't have that drive and, you know, uh, pop to do those kind of workouts. So certainly my last four weeks before, um, Scotiabank were pretty rough. I think the longest run I did was 20 K 
Um, and that's not what you want to be doing. So the muscular endurance was definitely a weakness for me. I know why. I know how to fix it, which is actually really, really exciting. I mean, from a coaching perspective, whenever whenever I'm talking to an athlete who's had a race that was, um, you know, maybe subpar or, or didn't meet their expectations, didn't meet their goals. But if we know what went wrong, if we can identify the factor that we think was, you know, here's here's what caused this the race to go the way that it did and then we know how to fix it that's really really great because then we know what to work on for um for the future you know if we're going to do that race again or a similar race again and in my case i know what it was i know what i did wrong in training i know what i did you know what what element of my physical fitness was lacking and uh, I think I know how to how to make it better for 2020. And I would hardly call that a failure with beating your target by four minutes. So that's that's pretty exceptional, um, despite the the positive split. But um, I think yeah, tons of positive takeaways to take from that. Yeah, I was I was very happy with it. I mean, like like I said, you know, I started this I started the conversation saying that I blew the race, and you know, if you're if you're being if I was being very critical about my execution, 100%, that wasn't well done, but uh, it was it was useful for for learning those lessons. So there's two interesting things I want to touch on there. So first of all, you had the power meter failure, and I think it's something that as technology um, becomes more abundant around people, they, they have less understanding of feel and what they can pace. So... I would, I would say it's important for a lot of people to do some of their training, at least just on perception and on feel, because that power meter might, might not always be there for you, or the heart rate monitor might not always be there for you. There, there could be failures like this during any race. For sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, that's why I'm, if it's a big race for, for someone I, I work with or for me, there's always a plan B. Um, and so usually it's like, you know, you have a list of, you know, you have a, an A, B and C plan. Where perception of effort for long races is quite hard. I mean, you have to be quite a mature kind of athlete <laughs> to be able to race well on on RPE alone for long races. For shorter races, it's it's much easier to do. But for longer races, especially at the start, because the risk is always just overcooking it, um, and that's you know the fatal error of uh, of long distance racing for most of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, I had pace, right? So I had I knew what you know I had a tar- I had a power target and I had a pace target. So when the power target I couldn't access. It was funny too, because it's not, it didn't die. It went from, my power target was around 320 watts. Okay. That was what I was trying to hit at. uh, And obviously for for those of you who run with power, you know this, but running power is significantly higher than cycling power. I wish I could do three (laughs) hours at 320 watts on the bike. I would be a happy camper. I'll just start calling you Lionel. Yeah. Well, he's stronger than that. Um, (laughs) But um, so yeah, so the run, that was my running power target and around kilometer 19, it briefly lost contact with my stride, my watch did. And then when it started showing power again, it was like 600 watts. And <laughs> clearly that was, you know, some kind of equipment failure at that point because I, w- I wasn't running any harder. And actually it's, it's because cycling is, um, you have, uh, you have a me- huge mechanical advantage running, you don't. So it's actually physiologically possible for me to run 600 watts. Whereas like pedaling 600 watts is no problem. Well, it's hard, but I can I can maintain it for at least thirty seconds. Um, so I, obviously this was a bullshit power value, um, and then it just you know after three or four kilometers of that it just stopped transmitting altogether. And I've had a battery die on my uh, my 
footpod and it was doing the opposite where it was saying like five like i was going along at 4 30 i think was my target pace and then it started saying five minutes and then 5 15 then 5 30 and then six minutes and that's where you have to be able to make that mental connection saying hold on something's wrong here because if you keep speeding up trying to match a, a false pace uh you'll know pretty quickly hopefully that uh, that you're doing something wrong but if it just starts to drift by a small amount i'd say that's the most dangerous thing where you're slightly overdoing it but not realizing it right right no that's that's a great point so for instance for running if you're running with power you know if that's your gold standard then your you know silver standard if i can torture that metaphor a little bit would be pace and then if that fails you have heart rate right so then those things kind of you know, heart rate's obviously the trickiest one to use because it drifts and depending on how hard you're running, you may not be very useful at all. Um, but um, that's, you know, so you have like, that's that's your plan A, B, C. On the bike, it might be power first, heart rate second, RPE third, because speed is, you know, a dodgy proposition on the bike for all the reasons we've discussed many times. Um, yeah, so that's that's my marathon. Uh, super happy, lots of, lots of positive lessons learned. Uh, and I think we have one more thing we want to talk about. And uh, there was a, a new bike announced by British Cycling to use on their track team. And uh, this is quite the, quite the bike. We'll put a, a, a link to the photo in our show notes. <laughs> it is something. Um, yeah, I guess beauty's in the eye of the beholder in this case. Um, but what they've done is they pulled the forks and the seat stay or sorry the um yeah the the seat stays uh as far away from the wheel as possible so the reason for this is first of all the uci changed the rules slightly so they allowed uh, a few other things um so the increased width of the forks and seat stays but they also allowed a longer aspect ratio of the with an aspect ratio is essentially width to length ratio of the airfoil shape used to construct these elements so with these changes, um, British Cycling and Lotus, they developed this new bike that has focused on drag reduction for indoor cycling. Um, so this is not an outdoor bike, um, but basically they pulled things as far away from as possible from the wheel. And it looks different. <laughs> it looks a lot like the Shiv, the Shiv triathlon front end, right? So the, the, new, the new Shiv disc bike that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the front end is very reminiscent of that, so it's it's a it's a much wider stance fork, um, you know, with a long blade. So from the front, it it definitely you know calls to mind that bike. That's the only other bike that I can think of that that does this um, aesthetically. Aesthetically, it's just I don't I actually I legitimately don't know what to think. It doesn't. It's not like an instant revulsion <laughs> for me, but uh, it's certainly it's certainly a, a non traditional looking bike. But I'm, I'm, you know, and I've said this before when we talked about the ship, I'm very much in the camp of if it goes fast, then I'm all for it. You know, if you know, goes fast and doesn't fall apart on you, I'm all for it. And this was kind of in the, you know, in the realm of what we were talking about, uh, what you were talking about in, um, in improving aerodynamics by allowing air to flow between the wheel and the, the fork or the, the seat stays, right? Exactly. Yeah. So what happens is you build up something called a boundary layer where essentially the surface of the wheel um, or the surface of anything moving through any fluid will grab onto that fluid flowing by it and slow it down. So if you have the boundary layers interacting with each other because they grow over distance, um, if they interact with each other, then they can essentially block off the airflow in between the wheel and the fork. Um, so without getting too much 
<laughs> so after giving a boundary boundary layer explanation, <laughs> I'm saying now if we don't get that was too a very much good boundary layer right? explanation, I think. I'm, I've explained it enough times to people and had eye rolls and glazed eyes that uh, <laughs> I've learned my lessons. But um, yeah, the, the key here is just that they're trying to reduce the impact of, um, of having two, two things close together. So if you imagine having like a, uh, like a screen door mesh, for example, uh, what you're getting essentially is uh, a large blockage of the amount of cross-sectional area you have and you're forcing uh, air or anything to flow through that screen um, through a much smaller area where the, the boundary layers are interacting with each other. So you get a, a large amount of a resistance. Um, so that's why, you know, if you try to blow on a screen, it won't really go through very easily. Um, so that's essentially the same effect that they're trying to avoid. So why do we see this on some bikes and then very narrow forks on other bikes? And the answer is basically that you can go one of two ways. So there's, if you go really far, there's going to be low drag, or if you go really close, there's going to be low drag because essentially you're now hiding two components within the same boundary layer. Um, but you have to get really, really close, like within a millimeter or two in order to get that, that close effect to work out for you. Right. The worst possible location is where forks are traditionally placed, where they're kind of in between. They're not far, they're not close. They're just this in-between range where you get a lot of the interaction occurring and a lot of additional drag. So um, a big limiter was using uh, rim brakes before, but now that disc brakes have come out, you start to see that movement away from that because they're no longer confined uh, to that kind of geometry. So I think it's it's pretty interesting. Um, it's a first stab. Honestly, yeah, I, I don't love the look. It looks like you're getting ready to put fat bike tires on there. So maybe that's yeah, yeah. Maybe that's an introduction for the next Olympics. So well, from a manufacturing fat bike track cycling. <laughs> fat bike track cycling. Yeah, maybe in this, you know, in the the X Games. Um, yeah. The from a manufacturing or an engineering perspective, I would imagine that going wide, uh, like Lotus did here, uh, is easier because if you can imagine, um, you know, the the earlier the the other alternative of going really really narrow, which is what I think a lot of older bikes used to do. Like for instance, even the Shiv TT bike that I ride is a fairly narrow fork with not much clearance around the tire. Um, I think a lot of the, I think the early model Cervellos did that, uh, went that way. And it was for the reason that Andrew mentioned that, uh, you know, you obviously had a, a rim brake that you had to fit around there, but that presents a lot of challenges. For instance, tire clearance is a huge deal, right? You wouldn't be able to put a, a wider tire on that, or even like a wider wheel with a wider tire, like the more modern wheels, um, because you mm -hmm. just have less real estate, right? If you really had to get within if you really had to get in with get within a millimeter, I don't know why I struggle with that. Get within a millimeter of the other surface, as Andrew was saying. Then, if your wheel is out of true by anything, it's gonna rub like crazy. So it's it becomes a very uh, it's not a very robust solution. It just doesn't work. Like it has to be perfect to work, and as soon as it's not perfect, it's not gonna work. And that's you know that's just not yeah you know, things things that things designed for the real world like that they don't very well because it never works out to be perfect and this bike is taken to the extreme but there's another point i want to bring up that um that they had challenges with uh, very clearly because you can see some of the the choices they made for design so when you have a 
a curved uh, structural member like the fork, uh, where it's coming way out. It's kind of like a um, like a, a bow from a bow and arrow, uh, where it's bent. So if you imagine pushing on one end of a, a bow that's already bent, it's going to deflect fairly easily. Uh-huh. Um, but if you were to take a straight, uh, the same straight piece of wood or whatever you're using, and treat it as a column and push down, it'll have a lot more stiffness. So they need to reinforce a lot of this uh, in order to make it um, stiff enough so that they can handle the loads that they're expecting to see in the track. Because you've got someone who's sometimes quite powerful, a little bit on the heavier side, just because they're so muscular in the case of sprinters, uh, going around a track that's got a 45 degree bank at 80 kilometers an hour. So there's actually a very, very significant amount of loading um, just in in terms of what you would normally perceive as gravity. So they had to add some, uh, it looks like either titanium or aluminum sections to the top of the front forks. I think it's titanium. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> so the crown is titanium. Yeah. No, oh, yeah. Come on. I shouldn't have second guessed. Aluminum is so mundane. <laughs> uh, yeah, boring. Yeah. Uh, so they've, they've added this to, to reinforce it and you can see it on some of the pictures and it's mainly the curved sections where they've just wanted to get that increased stiffness because carbon gets very difficult and very heavy to manufacture around some of these difficult shapes or, or getting that extra stiffness in there. Um, it isn't quite to the same extent on the rear, on the seat stays, um, where they've just got the, uh, just around the hub, they've got that titanium section. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's mostly because the chainstay itself is still reasonably narrow and it probably offers a lot of stiffness, uh, a lot of that vertical stiffness that they require. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if this bike is a lot heavier than a typical bike, but they probably saw that the aerodynamic benefits outweighed the, the mass, the extra mass. Hmm. Interesting. In the in the articles I've read, they said it was actually quite light. So it'd be interesting to see how how that was done. One of the reasons too, I think that the um, uh, the seat stays could get away with being uh, more carbon and, and skinnier is because the the seat stays form a rear triangle, right? Which is a pretty yeah. you know That's robust true. shape in its own on its own right. But whereas the fork is a is kind of an open ended member, uh, there is no triangle in the fork, so it's it supports quite a bit more load than the than the seat stay would. Honestly, the most important thing is that people are talking about it, I think. And <laughs> it's true, right? <laughs> so many of these things are just marketing, not gimmicks, but they're they're marketing pushes where all of a sudden now everyone's talking about this bike and it's done a very good job at getting noticed. So I'll give them that. It's not just another bike that looks like a traditional two triangle frame. So it's it's something different. For sure, and that's that's what we that's what different is what we want. Different is what yeah. uh, this show is, well, at least partially all about. Yeah, and I would say that some of these trends, um, like it'll probably become less extreme over time, but um, it it might give people a new perspective on things, and you might see some new bike designs evolving out of this that are a little bit more reasonable, a little bit more manufacturable. Um, don't need titanium, <laughs> so <laughs> things like that. Yeah, I mean, when you're doing kind of test bed stuff, this is you know this is where you start, and then you 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 trickle it down to something that's a little bit easier to make and a little bit more reasonable. And as part of the Olympic rules, um, their homologation rules, this is technically available to the public, but they have not yet announced pricing or availability. And I expect the pricing to be ridiculous and the availability to be almost nothing. So, which is a typical ploy that they use, right? Awesome. So this was this will wrap our first go at uh, five things I've tried or read about in our in the case of the Lotus bike because neither one of us have tried that bike. <laughs> well, you don't have one. That. 
<laughs> in my yeah. basement on a chair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with that, also that massive like sixty eleven, whatever that that chain that's ring combination. Good, yeah, on that, that, on, on yeah, that's a good combination there. <laughs> yeah, I can I can turn that thing no problem. Um, so uh, as always, thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, if you like the show, do tell your friends and uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks, everyone. 